needs some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China. Then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome to the China Business Cast. My name is Simon Deratz, and I'm your host for today. I have Sandrine Zerbib with me in this episode. She's a specialist when it comes to sports the industry in China. Not just sports industry, but actually she's developed over the years by also helping tons of Western consumer brands expanding their business into the Chinese market, such as G-Star, Tom's, Lacoste, Skechers, Ugg, and many, many others. It's fascinating just to have a chance to pick her brain and learn from her. The things that we will discuss in this episode will be quite diverse, but it will be very much focused on the China ecosystem in the e-commerce landscape. Maybe you're familiar with it. I'm not sure. It might be a little bit detailed because me and her are both very active in the e-commerce industry. So we might have skipped a little steps. I apologize for that. It's not intentional. It's just purely out of excitement, especially for me, excitement to have a chance to pick the brain of Sandrine and hear about her story and learn from her. I think you will learn a lot. We will discuss things about the China ecosystem, how the players like Gava, Gava is in the Western ecosystem, like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and then the China opposites, like they call it Batex, uh, B-A-T-X, so Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Xiaomi. Will there ever be one global ecosystem Or are we going to have two different models? That will be one of the things that we will be discussing. We also will discuss how China is so consumer-centric. And to keep up with that, it's very difficult to do that as an individual company, even if you are a global brand. For Therefore, in China, you have these service providers called TPs. The TPs are basically enabling brands, mainly foreign brands, to tap into the e-commerce industry and system and and help them to expand. So it's more like an outsourced e-commerce department, more or less. She wrote a book. That's the main reason I had a conversation with her. She's writing a book now. It hasn't been published yet, but please do keep your ears and eyes out there. There, The book will share much more how to handle uncertainty, thriving chaos, and how to uh, maximize this current phase of digitalization. I'm blown away. I hope you are too. China has known for its long-term vision and short-term execution. Sandrine has been participating in boards with global brands in the past few years. It is just inspiring. Please do leave your comments if you have any. If you have any questions as well, please put it into the episode or reach out to me or Sandrine in LinkedIn. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the China Business Cast. Today we have Sandrine Zerbib and her story is amazing. I listened to one of her podcast interviews about consumer products and particularly fashion brands, how they grew in the Chinese market. And her story fascinated me. It's it's not someone who just recently come to China. It's someone that has been in China for 27 or 28 years by now. now please, Sandrine, can you share a little bit more when you came to the early 90s, what did you do and how did your journey start? Hi, uh, Simon. Thank you for having me. 
Well, first thing is, uh, I came to China a little bit by chance. I was not meant to come to China. I did not know China, and I did not even know the industry I ended up in, which is the sports industry with Adidas. But I knew the uh, new shareholders of Adidas because I was in a bank that got involved with the uh, with the transaction. So initially, I was here for only a few weeks, a few months maximum, to uh, conduct a an assignment that was, uh, the idea was to really figure out what was the commercial potential of Adidas in China. And from the very minute, it was a combination of something super difficult. You have to remember that it was before WTO for China. This was 93 or something, right? Uh, Very beginning of 94. So before uh, accession to WTO, which means that for foreign companies, it was quite complicated to be in distribution, even if you distributed your own products. And also China was obviously very different from what it is today. The purchasing power was still quite low. Infrastructures, I would say transportation was fine, but really the commercial infrastructure was very, very poor. So on the one hand, as I said, very difficult. But on the other hand, you could feel, particularly in the 90s, you could feel that there was an energy and a curiosity that was about to make China the center of the world. And for these reasons, I really wanted, uh, in spite of, honestly, the challenges for me, I wanted to insist a little bit, and I asked the shareholders uh, of Adidas who had sent me here for an assignment if they would like me to to set up their subsidiary and start their business in China. And against all odds, they said yes. <laughs> They said yes, I think mainly because they were uh, truly entrepreneurs. And as such, they uh, they were betting on people more than ticking boxes of profiles. And this is how it all started. So um, it was really from scratch and at the beginning with a very shaky legal structure, uh, starting a business for Adidas in China and making uh, some key decisions and at the same time, yes, I didn't know anything about this industry. And obviously, I didn't know anything about China either. But I think, in retrospect, this was what helped me. Mm. Because instead of coming with preconceived ideas on how this business should be conducted, what kind of channels we should use, what kind of price points we should have, and so on and so forth, I really had to look around, understand what was going on, and use my observations as the basis for what I was doing. And I think that was actually the best help that I I got compared to some other executives who've been sent here after years in other subsidiaries in more mature markets and who actually were, in a way, the main obstacle for them was the fact that they were coming from more mature markets. Mm. So... Yes, I mean, you have also to, to know, or if you don't remember yourself, that the 90s were incredible years in China. It's honestly the period of China that I, I like most. There was such a, we say China is optimistic, but at that time it was even more. There mm. was a massive optimism, huge curiosity. And I think this is probably a little bit what we've lost. We have lost a lot of this curiosity. And we as China. Chinese. Oh, China, yeah. I mean, I, I call myself <laughs> we as if I was Chinese, yes. Yeah, this curiosity, this appetite. For, oh, there is appetite for new things today, but the new things is more about 
entertainment, never being bored. At that time, it was about catching up and learning everything that they hadn't had a chance to learn before. And in a way, very open, very willing to, to talk to you more than today to some extent. And at the same time, a lot of things pretty backwards, not organized yet. Purchasing power, very, very low. But you had this energy. This energy was at its peak, in my view, and it was a very, very enjoyable uh, period of time. That's also what I see in previous interviews, that being open-minded and being humble is one of the main reasons why some people succeed and maybe some don't. When it comes to you, your journey is fascinating, particularly building Adidas China from scratch. I saw that you've built it in the last 13, in 13 years time, not the last 13 years, but in 13 years time from zero into a 1 billion US dollar company. But what is even maybe more impressive is that even after you left, it was still growing and profitable. If you look at this experience, because you had, like you said, no experience in consumer products, you're working as a French person in a German company, no Chinese experience at that time. How did you pull this off? Well, I think that uh, I'll continue to be a little bit humble by saying that it was a good uh, segment to be in, okay? Uh, it's clearly the kind of brand that uh, had the right level of desire uh, from consumers. Having said this, if I was to, outside of what I said, which I think was really the main element, which was about really uh, looking around and understanding, I think it came down to three big areas of, uh, of decision and direction. One is really about the type of distribution we wanted. I remember we had a number of um, discussions with what was then uh, Adidas Asia Pacific, the regional organization, and they were really pushing uh, me to go for regional distributors in China to cover this, 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 that province. And I was totally, totally against it. I was absolutely convinced that uh, the model that will develop in China, and I have been proven true, would be a monobrand model. And at most, we would use what we called franchisees, but with very, very close cooperation, which gave us as much control over distribution as we could. So that was really an important aspect. The second important aspect, where also I had a number of debates with, again, people in the group and in the region, was about the price point and the positioning. It's a time when Adidas was actually being very successful in the rest of the world with originals, you know, which are more lifestyle kind of products. And actually at that time, I just didn't want to have any originals in China. It came much, much later. I wanted Adidas to be perceived uh, as anchored in sports. Originals, you mean China produced for no, the domestic market? No, originals is the trefoil uh, oh, lifestyle kind of collection. I see. So I didn't want the lifestyle collection, if you will. I wanted to have even though people were buying for lifestyle. But I, I thought it was very important to keep a very strong rooting in sports. And not only in sports, but in sports that mattered for Chinese. So yes, soccer mattered in terms of viewership, but in terms of participation, especially for the white colors or the children of the white colors, basketball was uh, at that time really the category to be in. Uh, so I insisted to have a real presence in basketball. The other thing is I also thought that when you're in China, it's obvious, but when you're outside of China, you tend to think, okay, they don't have much purchasing power. Let's give them cheap products. 
But when you're in China, you see immediately that is exactly the other way around, okay? Because they don't have much purchasing power, when they invest in something which is more expensive than what they can find in uh, the local market, they are going to invest for the best, but not for a second best. So that was another very, very strong uh, position I had. And I think the third element is really about the team. I spent a lot of energy and time and even passion in building a team that uh, was really engaged and embarked with me on this uh, venture as if it was our own company. Mm. And we had a great time together. I think it was my greatest professional time ever. Even after that, when I started my own company, I did not enjoy it in a, in terms of a human relationship the same way. And today we're still quite close, actually. I'm still quite close with my former colleagues. They all had very nice careers uh, in, in China, in all sorts of uh, companies. And uh, yes, I think that was really, um, I, I think these three elements were the key elements. I see. After Adidas, you started doing some board member roles and also full jets. And that kind of help the experience you just described will definitely help you for what you've been doing because you're helping mostly foreign brands to enter the Chinese market. Yeah. Would you still advise them these same three things you just listed with no distributors, higher pricing, and then focus on your team? Not necessarily, because I think it depends also on what the brand can afford. Uh, so the no distributor is not that straightforward. I would say that... If you can't afford to control your distribution, it's better to choose very carefully your distributor and to make sure you've got the right relationship with your distributor and to participate in the development together with your distributor, at least on the marketing side of things, uh, rather than just say no distributor. It really depends on what you can afford. And, and therefore, if you have a distributor, obviously the team is a, is a little bit of a different story. But for the premiumness, I would say, generally speaking, although it's not an absolute rule, but generally speaking, foreign brands are more successful in premium segments than in uh, mass market segments. They are more attacked uh, by local competition on mass market segments, and they do better on premium segments. And often, actually, they are more premium in China than they are in their home market. It's true for a lot of brands. Yeah, I still remember whenever I have friends or family coming to China, I take them to the fake market. Mm -hmm. And whenever they're Chinese, I need to take them to like the main shopping streets with all the big brands <laughs> just to be able to serve their needs. So it's very interesting as well, what you mentioned before. So in, with Fulljet, the company you, you, you have been running for the past few years, you mainly serviced as a TP, right? Yes, we are a TP, or I should say we were because we, we, we have now merged the operations with Baozun, which yeah. is uh, the company which acquired us, and it is the leading TP in China. So yes, a TP, but with a positioning which was quite different from other TPs because I didn't have an IT background. My team didn't have an IT background, which is usually the, uh, the case of most TPs. Uh, so we were very brand focused and we were also providing consulting services, uh, which usually TP don't do. Mm -hmm. A TP for the record is, there are different names for it. I think it's the, it started like as a Timo partner or Taobao partner Taobao and later partner, became yeah. third party or trading partner. Yeah. But either way, it's an external company outside of the Alibaba or 
a Jing Tencent landscape that helps a brand to enter the Chinese market either online Not or offline? Not just enter. It, they can help a brand uh, which is already very well established mm. in China. But it's it's almost... And it's a little bit difficult for Western uh, the Western world to understand because they don't have an equivalent. Mm. But it's almost like the... It's like outsourcing a large part of your e-commerce department to a third party. And uh, this actually all started with Timor, particularly Timor. When Timor started, they were not willing to deal with the brands in direct. It was too complicated, would have been way too costly for them to have all these account managers uh, to explain to all these brands uh, how to do things. And they actually encouraged uh, the creation of TPs. So they they much preferred, and still today they do prefer, not just them, but other platforms, to deal with TPs, which are experts, which deal with pretty much everything. Uh, obviously, it starts with the opening of the store on the platform, which requires some administrative stuff, okay? But then there is also um, the development of the user interface Within the the templates provided by the platform, the binding with the between the backend and the and the client system, and then the, the product pages, the performance marketing, the content marketing, the customer care, the logistics. So it's a lot of different skills that, uh, unless you're a huge company, are complicated to put it all in one company. So. Generally speaking, the vast majority of foreign companies use a TP. It's less true for local companies, it's about 50%, but that's roughly the way it is. Do you think that will stay? You just mentioned that for Western, it's a very completely different model than what Western companies are used to in their home markets. If I ask a Chinese company, or a Chinese company approached me asking, can you be my TP in Europe? Mm -mm. But then ask them, sure, but you have to pay, and then they say, no. -uh. <laughs> so it's also like for Western companies who want to enter, they understand that it is a service that you also, because a lot of TPs in the end, they have a fixed fee and a variable fee. Depending on the potential of success, normally the fixed fee is higher or lower mm -hmm. and the commission is higher or lower. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that it can be even seen as a more like a temporary solution for the coming years and then it will fade out. I'm not sure. And I would even think uh, not really, because if you look at some very established companies, they are huge and yet they use a TP. They have started to in-house some functions, but they do use a TP because for them it's worth it using a TP, using a company that basically takes care of all this and they can focus on more value-added services. Mm -hmm. But it is true, though, and I agree with you, that the, the job of TP is going to evolve and is evolving already. So from the first day when uh, Timo was actually creating this whole new uh, industry of uh, service industry of TPs, to today it's already quite a big change. We will see more and more concentration, that's for sure. There will be a sort of double movement. On the one hand, we see some TPs and some tendencies among all TPs to go towards some commoditization of the TP job. Very focused on operation, which are quite labor intensive, like customer care, logistics, this kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, you also see a completely opposite trend, which is uh, TPs opening up to more kind of activities, more in digital marketing, more in consulting, a lot in IT with a lot of investments in IT. And in the case of Baozun, this is also the meaning of us, of them acquiring us. 
they wanted to actually add on uh, a company which compared to theirs was tiny, but had some cult, I mean, had a culture and, and skills that, and a profile of employees that did not exist at Baozun. Much more strategic, consulting driven, brand focused. And this is another way for TPs to evolve. So that will be the advantage for them to acquire you, but what will be the advantage for you to become part of Bautzen? Well, very clearly to be with the leading in the uh, TP business, uh, the leading company in TP business is an advantage. So the first one I can think, which is really obvious, is IT. The IT developments and innovations at Bautzen are really state-of-the-art. And we could never, in I don't know, in a whole century, <laughs> with the power, financial power we had, uh, we could not uh, develop to, to this level. Then in terms of scale, I would say that when you work at a much bigger scale, then you can start working for also much bigger clients that are interested in certain of your services, but on the other hand, would not ask you to become their TP because you don't have the scale to service them. So I, I think it's quite complementary. Mm, I see. When it comes to brands itself that want to enter the Chinese market, you've seen a lot of brands entering the market. You also participated on, on many of them. Mm-hmm. Why do you see, think that some succeeded and, and some did not? I think that there are several reasons, okay? The first one, which is a little bit sad to say, is that to some extent, I would say that some brands have no chance. I know it's tough to say this. It's very direct the way I put it. But I think that for any brand that considers entering China, the first thing to do is to conduct a little audit to see what's the potential really. What's the appetite consumers are likely, Chinese consumers are likely to have for these brands? Have they heard of it? Do they speak about it? Or at the very least, has the brand the capability to adapt to the consumer needs? and to invest in this market. If none of these boxes are ticked, I think it's better not to try, okay? It's, it's tough what I'm saying, but it's, it's real. So once, but if you, if you tick a number, not necessarily all of them, but a number of these boxes, then it's really about your willingness to, to commit to this market, to adapt to this market. And I, this is really, really, really important to admit that this market is different and that you can't just do what you've always done in other markets, or particularly in Western markets. So it's going to be a combination of really trusting your local team, but also, and I think it's not enough to trust your local team, you also need at headquarters level to start building some real China capabilities. And those who have succeeded the most uh, are those who have, over time, especially the big companies, over time become experts because they have enough people at headquarters to think China at, at the beginning and not as a second thought. And I think that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And if you think of companies like, I, I don't like to give names, but I'm going to give big names. They are pretty obvious. <laughs> So companies like L'Oreal, for instance, uh, which has 80% of its products, which are China for China and has labs in China to really, to really develop uh, specific products. If you think of a company like uh, Nike, for instance, which really made a lot of efforts to understand the consumer 
And yet it remains a relatively centralized company. So it's not a question of decentralization. It's much more, in my view, a question of China expertise at headquarters, uh, KFC, which on the one hand uh, was on the country quite decentralized. So the models can vary from one company to the other, but overall what they all have in common is the willingness to commit to China, to adapt to China, to understand what really the consumer wants and to give what the consumer wants and not just what the brand thinks the consumer should want, uh, which is often the mistake. So <laughs> I would say it's also a question of humility, of making the effort to understand the environment, to understand the consumer uh, and adapting to the consumer with products and with communication. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of valuable parts, particularly when it comes to localization mm -hmm. and maybe even the consumer-centric kind of approach. Yeah. When it comes to Chinese brands that are trying to compete, for example, with Nike and also with Adidas, mm -hmm. I know you've been also involved with Anta to advise them going into the U.S., but oh, okay. about, <laughs> about Li Ning and Anta, what would, would you recommend them to do the same, to involve maybe more Western people in their head office or... Any um, thoughts about this? Yes, eventually they will have to. I don't, I'm not 100% sure they're ready for it because this takes a while. Okay. But eventually they will, they will have to. It's just the same as for a company to become truly international, they need to, to have a, an international culture, which also expresses itself in the fact that you've got different nationalities working together. And this is really important. I mean, if you stay in, in your local bunker, I, I would say, uh, and you try to export directly from the bunker to China or from a Chinese bunker to the rest of the world, it's not going to work. That's for sure. But I mean, talking about Anta, it's quite interesting because they wanted to go to go international. The ambition was really to not to be the Nike of China, but to be the Anta of the world. And in order to do this, they first considered using the Anta brand. And this is actually when we advised them. And we were very honest in our advisory. And at the end of this uh, advisory uh, mission, they decided not to do it and to go for a completely different strategy, which was about becoming a multi-brand platform and acquiring already established international brands that they could obviously boost in China, but also continue to grow in the rest of the world. So now they are at the crossroad because they acquired a lot of brands. They did a great job, to be honest. In China with uh, Fila, if they didn't acquire Fila, they acquired the Chinese rights for Fila. They entered a joint venture with Descent. For these two brands, they did Marvels. And then they acquired, which was really a big, big, big step for them, they acquired the Amy Group with the you know brands like Wilson, Arcteryx, uh, and, and many others, Sunto, and many others, Salomon. So for this, I think already they see signs of, very positive signs of development in China. For the rest of the world, they still need to prove they are able to manage subsidiaries outside of China. It's too early to say. Mm. Very interesting development. In general, what I see is that 
China itself is very much ecosystem focused. Yeah. You have one dominant player and around it service providers. Yeah. It's also what Anta is trying to do actually with multi brands to be able to lift their image, but also their operations, yeah. their exposure. Do you think in the end, it seems like, because we know we have this China firewall uh, when it comes to e-commerce ecosystems, uh, same as what you have in US based, like mm-hmm. Facebook, the GAFA, yeah. the Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon, and also here in, in China. Do you think it will sustain to have these two ecosystems separately? Or do you think that will somehow be merged into one global ecosystem? Oh, I don't think as long as I live, it will be merged into one global ecosystem, but I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but today I would say they are pretty distinct ecosystems. Uh, there is no desire for the Western world to, to take in the Chinese ecosystem and for the Chinese world to take in the Western ecosystem. And also you have to understand how deep these ecosystems have settled in in their markets. Uh, they, they are so deep in people's lives that um, this creates an inertia in this evolution that is probably the main obstacle for each other to start going into each other. This is the way consumers buy, and you don't change consumers' habits that quickly. I don't see this happening anytime soon, to be honest. I do see some advantages of the Chinese ecosystems over the Western ones, which could potentially influence the Western ecosystems more than the other way around. Yeah, I tend to agree that I see Facebook is looking at what's happening in China for the ecosystem of Alibaba and Tencent and and applying that with apps and an environment around their ecosystem. What would always be challenging is who will be where first because Facebook, Amazon, very dominant US and also Europe. But that's not the majority of the population in the world. (laughs) And then there's China that's expanding. You're right. But on the other hand, uh, there is this, plus there's the fact that the Western, let's say the GAFA, they suffer from initially being very specialized, which is not the case of the uh, Chinese platforms. None of the Chinese platforms are specialized. And when they are, they do whatever they can within even a few years to get out of their specialization. If you look at Douyin now, which is going full speed into e-commerce, uh, doing TikTok for those who know it under the name of TikTok, full speed uh, into e-commerce, trying to also have their own mobile payment mechanic system. So there is not a single platform which is successful in China, which wants to remain specialized. They want to, on the contrary, be everything for everybody. And this is how they create their ecosystems. I think it will be much more challenging for initially very specialized platforms of the West to become that unspecialized, I would say. And also, I think that very early on, the Chinese platforms have all been about, because they are really, they are catering for the needs of a very young consumer, a consumer who is incredibly thirsty for entertainment and uh, new things all the time and get bored in half a second, I would say. Uh, it's all about providing a very immersive shopping experience on the platform where actually buying is, is not the most important. I mean, in, in, of course, it is very important, but in the view of the consumer, you spend time on the platform. You watch videos, you play games. 
you share with friends, you watch live streaming, whatever, okay? And then incidentally, you buy something. And it's such a different approach from the experience of buying on Amazon. I mean, we have all bought something on Amazon one day. It's a totally different experience. And it's actually addressing a different age of consumer. Hmm. The one is more search engine, the other one is exactly. more experience. Exactly. Things just happen on the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you yeah. end up buying. Yeah. Yes, that's fascinating. I, I think these ecosystems, there's so much to learn. I'm not, I'm not sure who's going to win. I don't think it, does, it, it matters. It's in the end the consumer decides yeah. which one will be most suitable for the time they're in and for the maybe 10 years from now that might be very different. You mentioned, because that's basically why we came to this interview. You wrote me a message on, on LinkedIn that you were writing a book. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit more about what you're writing about? So, yes, uh, I'm uh, writing a, a book uh, together with another person who is a former colleague on what specific management skills and practices Chinese entrepreneurs have developed over the last, particularly over the last 10 years, but obviously it roots much earlier than that. So what development, what skills they have developed that give them today a true advantage to compete in China, potentially to compete out of China, but also to compete in a world where these skills are particularly demanded. And what I mean here is a very digitalized world, a very uncertain world where you need to deal with uncertainty every minute. And what we have seen is, it's actually quite interesting because when I first arrived, I, I didn't see that. When I first arrived in China, honestly, partly wrong and partly true, I saw it as a complete chaos. Okay. I had no favorable impression of Chinese enterprises. It was indeed chaotic. Okay. But already you had the germs of you know, the, these developments that we saw uh, later on, which is the development of the ability to, to adapt, speed to market, consumer centricity, which in turn led them to know how to use data probably in a much more efficient way than most Western companies I know. The way they manage people as well, which is a combination of very top-down and very decentralized approaches the way a kind of like, a, sort of like the family culture, which is at the heart of Chinese culture, is pervading uh, companies. The way also you can see, I mean, again, I, I want to go back to the consumer centricity, mm. which is exceptional. They know how to give to the consumer what the consumer wants exactly at the moment uh, the consumer wants it. And I think also one thing which is quite remarkable is the ability to mix very long-term vision and very short-term action. And this is something you, by the way, you see at country level, at the way they're managing certain aspects of the country. And you really see at company level, particularly in private companies, probably not as true for state-owned enterprises, but in private companies and particularly in the most successful private companies, you can see this. So the whole, the whole book is about explaining these skills, showing a lot of examples on these skills at work, how some Western companies have started to use these skills in China and what we can learn from these skills and how we can potentially not import all of them because some of them are so deeply rooted in Chinese culture that they are not necessarily all relevant. 
but some of them um, are good lessons for for Western companies to evolve in a world which is becoming uh, increasingly uncertain, which requires the ability to thrive in chaos a lot more than before, to face digitalization with a lot of adaptability, and so on and so forth. Mm. When it comes to this, I'm fascinated with the long-term vision and then the short-term execution. You've been a board member in a lot of brand, with a lot of brands and other companies. Is that also what is being discussed, this kind of defining the strategy, long-term impact with short-term actions? Frankly speaking, it's not what I see as the dominant way of working in Western companies. In Western companies, the horizon is a three to five years horizon. In Chinese company, when I say long-term vision, it's it can be 10, 20, 50 years vision. And this is really the kind of horizon they are aligning against. So obviously, it's not detailed, but it's a strong vision. It's a strong vision that is expressed very clearly to the entire team. And it's not really the kind of thing I see in Western companies. Uh, the corporate culture is driven by a mid-term horizon which is actually uh, giving rise to midterm KPIs. And this actually entices uh, certain behaviors which are quite different from what you see in, uh, in, in Chinese companies. Mm, interesting. What is the timeline for the, the book, if people are interested? Or do you have any thoughts on how they can find you or, or to reach out to you on that? Well, I haven't yet uh, completely sorted out everything, but uh, definitely it's uh, within less than six months it will be out. Awesome. It will be very nice if we can maybe have another short sure. talk when it's finally launched yeah, and then pleasure. maybe we can promote it and also give it, give it away, give it a prize mm -hmm. or something like that. That would be very cool. Mm -hmm. If uh, anyone is fa interested to reach out to you, what is it now? Because you've sold your company, you're still involved. Mm -hmm. What is it currently your path for going to be look like on your employment or your future plans? Okay. Well, I think the book for me is very important because it drives the way I want to work in the future. So um, that means I want to, and I have already, step back from daily operations, but have a little bit more time to think about longer-term things with the book and also to think non-operationally to help others. You talked about some board positions. That's also something that today I really enjoy doing because I can really use my multiple years in China to share and give back to, to others. And I think I have come at a stage in my development where I feel it's the right time to do this, mm -hmm. either through book or through board positions or the, you know, writing articles and stuff like this. Awesome. So if you, you hear it, if you want to reach out to her, she's plenty of knowledge. Sandrine has so much knowledge, not just among consumer products, but also just on China itself, the ecosystem, the, the community, the culture. And so I think you can reach her on LinkedIn, I guess. Absolutely. That yeah. will be the best place. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for Sandrine for sharing your years of experience and Thank your you. thoughts. Thank you very much, Simon. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.